Now, this is what I call mysticism. I, the, the third stage of spiritual awareness is mysticism, and this corresponds to beauty when we say good, true, and beautiful. All right? So I'm saying that the good and the true is deeply fraudulent, and that people are in this self-deception, that they fall prey to self-deception. It has mostly to do with them judging other people. Right? And so, but when you get to that place of beauty, where are you? Beauty is beauty, man. You're not about judging people at that point, are you? And so when you when you talk about mysticism, this is giving the light, sending the light. You know, that's mysticism. That and, is what it comes in place of judgment, is sending light. Right. Uh, it starts out by saying, who is the light of the world except God's Son? And then it talks about, uh, you know, the ego does not understand humility, mistaking it for self-debasement. Humility consists in accepting your role in salvation and taking no other. So, uh, and it's arrogance, you know, you remember, the Course always says it's arrogance to, you know, reject what source God Most High is telling you, you know, rather than accept that the voice for God himself would tell you the truth. So, uh, It says, uh, I think I'm almost to this part I'm looking for. Yes. I forgot to underline it in here. Um, you will, okay, you will want to think about this idea, which is, I am the light of the world. You will want to think about this as often as possible today. It is the perfect answer to all illusions and therefore to all temptations. Now, here's part that I like. It brings all images you have made about yourself to the truth and helps you to depart in peace, unburdened and certain of your purpose. Now that brings up a couple things for me. The depart in peace, it's pointed out here, in my particular uh, uh, version of the Course that I like to use, it says in the above passage, because we have seen that our true nature is the light of the world, we can depart in peace from our false self-images, no longer burdened with them, and walking, toward, walking forward certain of our purpose of saving the world. Now, again, that brings up a couple of things for me, the same couple of things. Uh, but it's just an explanation of what is going on here with uh, seeing yourself as the light of the world in the context of what we were talking about yesterday. I was attempting to speak to you know, the people who find that they're in this diminishing returns cycle and cannot get out. The reciprocal narrowing. Yeah. The addiction. Yeah, but uh, it really is a diminishing returns. Mm -hmm. And it seems inescapable, and it seems to gain momentum as you go down. <clears throat> right. So it sucks the life out of you, literally. And so my concern, and it's a deep and heavy concern, because from the time I had that visitation and that healing, 
I busied myself preparing to go to Africa. I didn't know what I was facing. I didn't know how Brian was related to me or what my role or mission was going to be, but I was going to give it all I could. And um, so I sent light, constantly sent light to him. He would, And at times he would tell me, well, I just don't know how what I would possibly do without you having been there for me. You know, but and you being there now. But the thing is, so I'd send light. And I knew from the experience that I'd had doing course ex workbook exercises, I well, well, well knew that when you send light, you do this exercise, you send light and you totally surround the person with the light. And I knew how to do this from the other side. I came back knowing that. And it was probably the strongest impression I immediately had on return. And so I would do that all the time. I'd send light. And when you do it, you see that light gathering around the person in their aura. You see them in the brightness of the light, clothed in the raiment of the divine toot and common. Okay, that's how you see them, in their eternal glory. Truly, that's what it is. It's clothed in the raiment of God, his light. That's what everybody is over there. So, <clears throat> I would see that. There is no way on this lifetime, on this earth, that I have figured out how to hold grievances, to hold a lack of love, to stand a, a distance away, to believe and try to create a, a belief in separation. You see that light of God in, around that person. You see the divine. And you see yourself. You see the joining. And you see the oneness. And you see the allness of you and everything and everyone. And you move into a place of Divine love. It's not a lack. There's no lack of love there at that point. If you if a person says, I want to love... And the exercise starts out dealing with difficult people. You know, and then you... People that are hard for you to love at that moment. And then the people that bring up some kind of conflict in your mind that pushes you away. So you, you do this exercise toward them, and then you emphasize the the uh, fact that this is without exception absolutely applied to all of creation without equal, equally, with equanimity. You know, nothing withheld, no one excluded. So you learn to do it that way, that's part of your learning, but still, when you're doing it, working primarily on an individual every time you send it, and, and when you do... You're developing a very, I found out, a very deep and unbreakable attachment to that person. Because now you always see them as they are, in the light. And what, whatever they do, say or do, you can say, I'm not trying to, I'm not trying to deny it, I'm not trying to say anything about it. 
I'm not trying to hide from it. I, they attacked me. They didn't like me, or whatever you can say. But, uh, but, and you're not trying to avoid it by saying, well, it wasn't personal, they didn't, blah, blah, blah. You're not. You're not in that activity. But you're still in the activity of wanting to send light and seeing them as whole. And plus which, he was one of my two visitations. His higher self was one of my two visits. I could see him on the other side totally as he is. And I will never forget that. I've never forgot it. So it's like I never had a moment of forgetting it. So, and people don't believe this. That's so outside of people's ken. But this is what, this is what people experience that are trying to be in mysticism and trying to open to the divine. This is part of life. This is part of the mystical life. It simply is. And I don't care who wants to experience it and who doesn't. It's part of a spiritual and spiritualistic life. You know, and so, anyway, I, now, I mean, the fact that he derailed and just absolutely went crazy and just became hateful toward the universe, it doesn't, I'm sorry, I don't have a gut response to that. I don't. I don't have anything to forgive. I'm not pushed away. I'm inclined. I, I just want to send light. I still see him surrounded by light. I still see him as he is. Because I kept doing this. This is the only person on earth that I've ever done this experiment with so far. Day after day after day after day after day as I would go to work to pay his bills, as I would get ready, as I would return, whatever it was, through the day, through the night, whenever I could, I would send light. And to one person, with equanimity, of course, desiring that it go out all through all creation, and knowing that God would send it wherever. But it was my work and my promise that I was sending light, and I was. And... Uh, it had this unexpected effect, which I never saw coming, that now I could not forget who he really is as a child of God. I could not become uh, egotistical and unloving without presenting a lack of love in terms of the course. I... So no matter what went on, I'd be disappointed or I'd be hurt or whatever in a certain kind of a way, but <clears throat> uh, confused or whatever, but then trying to sort it out or whatever, but then I finally get back to the place where I cared very, very deeply about this person that I've been sending light to for so long and so intensely, high intensity. Action, this is. Because I go back to source. I cross over. I go back to where I was when I crossed over. Scoop up the light and send it out. You know, and it's just a profound activity. I guarantee that if you do this for the people where you think you have a, a friction or a rub with them, you just put this out. See them in the light and as the light. You cannot... 
you cannot but you you know forgive and move into a position of where there is no lack of love on your part. <clears throat> so I'm still dealing with this, of course. The person I'm afraid the person is just going through bloody hell, still on the rampage, still you know, God only knows experiencing just what at their own hand. I'm afraid they're going to lose everything they have, go in the ditch, have nowhere decent to be, have become more and more hateful toward the universe, all of this stuff. So I'm very much concerned. There was nothing I could do to stop it because they were flailing from the beginning. There was nothing I could do to get through because they didn't, uh, they were never serious about being on the level I was about understanding the light or desiring the light or moving toward the light because there was this sucking down into the center of the earth. So, <clears throat> and the drug abuse and all. So, and the alcohol. So there was no way. But now I have this desire to speak to him and all those like him. All those that are in that energy of of a of diminishing returns in their life. And now I realize what the, what the Course is saying here about depart in peace. I talked about this at length. I was trying to find some way to sum this up, and this just takes the words out of my mouth. Depart in peace. Note Demetis, it was called in Latin, in the, in the Catholic Church. Mm. Now dismiss us in peace. And uh, the meaning of this is I can go to my, I'm invited to rest. I'm called to rest. I can drop this and immediately. I, I'm willing to let it go and immediately I step into, I depart from it. I lay it down on the altar of, as flowers on the altar, the forgiveness of all of this. And I walk away. Departing in peace. Departing in peace. <clears throat> yeah, I get that. And it's so profound because when I came back, after I'd been back for a few months, and I, or maybe it was even long, maybe it was even a year or two by then, and I, I was worried. Am I going to forget, you know, the graphic, vivid uh, memories of what I brought back? And you're talking about coming back from having, having crossed over, having. Yeah. So, for the listener, yeah. let's just be clear about what this means. So, you had a what people refer to as a near-death experience. Right. Okay. So, you were basically on the operating table, and you died. Well, I was on... I, I, they didn't do an operation on me, but they could not do it. There was no operation to be done. So, they basically parked me on the side and figured I was just waiting for me to die, is what it was. And... Um, so I was out that whole time. I was unconscious, and one only knows what was happening. But I was later told, <clears throat> on good authority, that I'd had a cardiac arrest during that time. 
and been resuscitated. Now, when you're out, you're just, when you're gone, and a life after life experience, you have no idea what that means. You just don't have any idea whether that could be true, whether it was true. You have no idea. <clears throat> so, it, it would mystify me, but, you know, and I've never felt, it's very strange to be told something and you have no evidence of it. You're just taking it on, like, well, is somebody playing with my brain, or are they telling me the truth, or all of this? <clears throat> because uh -huh. I ought to have some experience of it. If I had a heart attack, I ought to know. If I was resuscitated, I ought to know. Huh. Wouldn't I? Huh. But I didn't. So, <clears throat> so here you are, parked on the side. There's nothing they can do. It's like a busy hospital. They put people yep. in the hallway. Yeah, they? I was in the hallway. So here you are in the what do they call it? The, the outside the ICU, just in a in a space. We're on the gurney. So you're the in the IV. gurney outside the ICU in the hallway. Nurses are coming and going. Meanwhile, there's there's this crossing over experience that you're having, and then you find yourself back in the body, and they're saying, "Oh yeah, you." Uh, you you were dead, and we revived you. Well, they didn't tell me that then because that would have been a little too uh, much for your heart. Yeah, they didn't want to risk I that telling you. Crossed over. It, you found it later. Yeah, found out later. But right. so tell us about the crossing over experience. So you you as you talk about this, you say now you have brought back with from that experience the ability to um, to to give light to people. So you describe it as going back. To that place when you that you experienced when you crossed over, and gathering up the light, and then sending it out to someone. Right, you do it with prana breathing, which is like you visualize that it's coming through the crown uh -huh. and down your spine, all down through through the chakras. Okay, and you're anchoring it, and then the next thing you know, you're seeing it in your aura, in your own aura. Your aura is brightening and brightening. Uh -huh. When you get it fully brightened, then you can send it out. You know, and the thing is, you do this with uh, Reiki as well. You know, you just, you know, and you get used to doing this. But the this was very much confirmed for me on the other side. So I knew when I came back, you know, like, I understood that I knew how to move light. So then you send it from the brightness of you send it from your aura to their aura and you just as you send it you focus on sending it and you see their aura getting brighter and brighter and brighter uh -huh. but then once you've sent it this is what i'm saying after you've sent it it changes you it changes the way you see them changes the way you see them now different changes the way you react with them every minute of every day from then on. As long as you're sending light, you cannot be hateful, you cannot be uh, just like throwing somebody away. Apathetic. Uh, can't be apathetic. No, it's impossible. So, uh, you love them. You mm -hmm. know, uh, no matter what, there is no lack of love on your part. There cannot be. It's like, strangers, I, I did not expect this. But I realize now I can do it with everybody. I can do it and ought to spend hours a day doing it, sending it out to the world, sending it freely, being the light of the world and saying, yes, that's my role. Yes, I can do it. Yes, I am doing it. Here and now I do it. 
Okay, this is my work. Sit with the light. Yes. Be the light. Absolutely. Send out the light. Yeah, and I'm really serious about this. So, when I had been back for a while, I, I was afraid I might lose some of the vividness of all of this. And I was, I, I was deeply hurt at the thought that I might. And so I asked God to give me something that would prevent me losing it. And he gave me a meditation that I, it's a beautiful, beautiful, beautiful meditation. I'm absolutely amazed even now. But I never forgot it. It's very graphic once again in my memory. I cannot lose it. And what it is, is I'm sitting in the treetops somehow. I'm in a nest There are no birds in last year's nest this year. There's, I'm there by myself. Everything is the purpose for me. It's like I'm ready to leave. There's nothing holding me. I'm ready to go. And all of a sudden I hear this whirring sound, this air beating, something beating the air, you know, around me. And here come these angels, and they are swooping and getting me, and I'm going along with them through the air. We go a ways, and then we start going down to the ground, and there I see this uh, huge alabaster altar. And now, out of nowhere, like it happens in a dream, I'm holding all of these Beautiful flowers, what the Course refers to always as lilies of forgiveness. And this is where I'm going, from where I am. My first stop is this station, is this altar to God Most High. And all that I knew in that so-called life, all of my feelings of confusion, lack, loss, anger, irritation, whatever they were. Anything that was a lack of love or was not love. I placed it on the altar in forgiveness. As these flowers I, w I laid on the altar. Knowing. I give myself out. I pour myself out and just give myself to God in this way. I do not withhold the things that are not of God, the things that are not divine, the things that are not within the will of God, and therefore not really even within my will, if I were to but know. So I emptied myself of that. And then we I think we take off in the air again. We go a ways, and our next stop is this beautiful castle. Gorgeous castle. And we go in the, the, the first door that I'm led to. There's a, a like a portico and a walkway up to the door. And all of a sudden, There's just that I'm surrounded, just head in the face with the presence of God, so pure and so powerful, 
just absolutely huge presence, feeling of God being there. So then I go into the castle, enter the banqueting hall. And this reminds me of Ecclesiastes, where the the author says, I was brought to his banqueting table, and his banner over me was love. So you go in the banqueting hall, and you go to the table, and it's all these people. You know, all of the people in your life, you know, figuratively, just there, gathered. And, and it's just a time of celebration, inclusion, redemption, joy. Truly a festive occasion. And God is at the center of it. You are totally in the presence of God. And that was the exercise for me to... That was me being able to go back and visit heaven any time I wish. Through this meditation. Yeah. You know, as you're describing it, I, I think it would make a great animation. You know, if you got an artist to do, starting with the nest and then the angels and, and to the altar and to the banquet hall, that would be a great animation, would it not? Oh, it's spectacular. Yeah. Every bit of it now, is truly it, spectacular. So how did it finish up? That is how it finished up. I am home. I mm. it was so that I could go ba- I could mm. go back to heaven mm. any time I wanted to. Mm. What do you think the nest symbolizes? It's a- the empty nest symbolizes a point in your life where there's nothing that needs hold you back from heaven. There's nothing no business that needs to sidetrack you or Occupy you against going back to heaven, against knowing your place in heaven, against dropping your lilies of forgiveness on the altar. There's no nothing compelling but the love of Christ. I'm sorry, but I don't get that. So the nest, to me, would have different symbology. But for you, um... the nest, the nest, for me, I, apparently, I'm not sure the nest seems to have represented, you know, my earth life, mm. oh. or my earth occupation. Oh, I, yeah, okay, so that does make sense. I kind of, sometimes I will say that the earth is a womb for our soul, and that's a nest. A nest mm. is a womb, mm. in a sort, mm. and so we're not waiting to die, we're waiting to be born. Yeah, and, and that would certainly fit, too. You could consider the nest a spiritual uh, enclosure, almost. And, and your spirit is wants to fly toward the altar mm-hmm. and toward heaven, toward the castle, where the king is in residence. Mm-hmm. And where you experience the inclusion and the belonging and the homeness and the so, same way as you do in heaven, which is so shocking, absolutely the most shocking thing I've ever experienced in my so-called life was this uh, amazing inclusion. You just don't expect it. So many people, Christians all, have said, oh, you know, don't even tell me about, you know, heaven being that way. It's all conditional. You have to do such and so. You have to have been through the ordinances. You have to have been the, done the baptism this way. You have to have done... 
and you can't have had any sin, you and blah blah, and God is not going to include you, and God is not going to allow you, and God is going to uh-huh. disbar you and defrock you and every other thing. Okay. Why? Well, ignorance. But yes, um, out of ignorance, people profess certainty, which is a lie. <coughs> now, the quote that you uh, read, the quote again, because it uses the word certainty. Well, and that's the other thing I wanted we talked to discuss. About this yesterday. We talked about it in a way that uh, was not informative. Um, well, let me let me repeat what I said, and then you can respond to it. So, um, I've been working with this idea of the good, the true, and the beautiful, and um, which is often referred to as a Platonic ideal, and but it has changed over time. And so, I've decided to reappropriate this myself, and I kind of relate it to uh, growing up, waking up, and showing up. Uh, so, so the growing up is coming to some knowledge of what is good, you know, trying to respect other people and be, you know, be a good citizen, etc., etc. And so good is like a primary value uh, of people at that level of spiritual awareness that I, that I would call structure. Okay, they're, they're, they need structure, they need boundaries, and they're being taught what is good by their, by their peers and by their parents and by society. And so there's this emphasis on what is good. And then at the second level of spiritual awareness, this is the waking up stage, as I use the term, and I would label that as being struck, uh, skepticism. So that's moving from structure into skepticism. Now you're going from growing up to waking up. Your new core value is no longer good, but it is what is true. Okay. So, but what I find to be problematic is well, that in from both, your limited awareness of what truth might even be, or who might define it, or how it might be defined. And the same thing is is the case with good. I mean, your exactly. your, your understanding of what is good well, is very, very limited. limited. Um, you're operating within the earth plane, so of course... And you the people that are telling you may be false authorities that are very limited in their understanding of it. Undoubtedly true. If we look at history, this has, been, this has absolutely been the case. You have a history of the Catholic Church dominating the world. We call that the Dark Ages. They defined what was good. They defined what was true. And then there came the Reformation, uh, the Renaissance, and this was reason and logic started to replace you know, the beliefism uh, of the first level of spiritual awareness, and now they, they esteem the value of science and skepticism and reason, and this became uh, what was true for the world. And so we've moved forward to a point now where we're at this point looking back, and we're saying we're seeing a period of history where man was core value was good, and another period when the core value was true, and we realized that there wasn't a lot of good things, and there wasn't a lot of true things going on during that time. Well, we've been through embracement of structure and obedience to what people told us was good for us, although we knew it often was seen by them as not being good for them. But we were to obey it, and we were to believe it. Then we moved into a place of rejection. Mm-hmm. Okay, and, and that takes us to a place where we're basically vulnerable to being sucked down in an eddy of meaningless... Yeah, uh, the postmodernism and the nihilism. Frenzy and dizziness that just is almost sickening when you look at it, when you think about it. Nietzsche famously said, God is dead. So this is describing this uh, kind of second level of spiritual awareness where you move beyond uh, the, the, the need for structure, or you think you have. But really, 
this the skepticism becomes a structure of its own. You know, it's it's still structure. It does. It, be, it it definitely does. And so then you have you know false authority just transforming itself, and so you still have the dogmatic belief going on. You know, whether you're calling yourself be a Christian or you're calling yourself being an atheist, there's still this. It's either dogmatic belief or dogmatic unbelief. But this dogmatic unbelief is just a belief. You know, another way to manifest belief. So, but what they both have in common is this um, adherence to false authority or this projection of false authority, this this uh, reciprocal narrowing conditioning uh, of false authority. And so, you know, you're operating either on the left or the right, you know, to use the metaphor, the blue church or the red religion. And this seems to be, you know, the uh, what people understand in this world and so having and doing is everything that they are about is having and doing you know I need a new car I need a new house having its security um, doing I need to be involved in some activity I can't just sit still and so all of this kind of uh, human activity is missing something and so there's a meaning crisis people are suffering they're 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 in isolation from one another there's there's no sense of of community. They they feel like they're estranged from their family or the family that they had or they never had, and and so there's a lack. What's missing is home, that sense of belonging, that sense of safety, and that's what you're describing in your vision of going to that place. And it's it's truly incredible, because it is the ultimate place of safety, because you know that it's a place of indescribable well-being that you have never imagined even before being possible. And then you experience it and you realize it's not only possible, it is the reality of the universe. And then you... Now this is what I call mysticism. I, the, the third stage of spiritual awareness is mysticism. And this corresponds to beauty when we say good, true, and beautiful. All right. So I'm saying that the good and the true is deeply fraudulent and that people are in this self-deception that they fall prey to self-deception. It has mostly to do with them judging other people, right? And so, but when you get to that place of beauty, where are you? Beauty is beauty, man. You're not about judging people at that point, are you? And so when you, you know, when you talk about mysticism, this is giving the light, sending the light. You know, that's mysticism. That's what it comes in place of judgment, is sending light. Right. Empowering, right. rather than tearing back. Right. Move, stepping away from. Inclusion, rather than exclusion. All right. of these things. Right, right. Yeah, it's really profound when you go through it. But then once you have gone through it, that's what it is. So then you care deeply about people who cannot escape the doldrums and the forces that are pulling them down like so much quicksand driven by a powerful engine, you know, and that engine, you know, I mean, it just seems to annihilate us uh, psychically and spiritually if, if we don't know how to turn it around. And so that's what we were talking about yesterday. We were talking about trying to turn it around and address people. How do you turn it around? And, you know, that's where this 
this reading that I did today about simply essentially dropping it and stepping into peace, departing from it. I just decide, okay, I did enough of this. I don't have to keep doing this. It's not doing me any good. It's not giving me or anybody else anything that I really want. I can stop. And so I do stop. I walk away. I depart in peace. Right then. It isn't to wait and wonder. It's to depart in peace right then and there. It doesn't and, involve years of shadow work. It doesn't involve um, some kind of um, process of becoming. It's just the simple act of departing in peace. It really is a profound, profound thing to know that you could depart in peace. And everything that you went through, we can depart in peace from our false self-images no longer burdened with them, and walking forward certain of our purpose of saving the world. Now this is from the commentary offered by is it Circle of Forgiveness in Arizona. I can't remember what the name is. But um, now, and then, and then this rehashes that we talked about certainty yesterday. And we said that certainty was what we thought were when we were in structure, we thought that was certainty. We, we were, were certain, certain of it. We're certain of what is good. And when you're in skepticism, you're certain of what is true. However, the Course denies this. The Course says, no, this is not true. Now, why would it not be true? Because you are in ambivalence. And Steps to Knowledge also says makes a big thing of this, even bigger. says... You are in ambivalence. You doubt everything. You are certain of nothing. Even though mm. that may be the closest pass you ever have to certainty. But you're still ambivalent. You're still doubting. <coughs> One of the things that stands out to me most about structure and skepticism is this dogmatic. Well, that's why it's dogmatic. Because it needs to overcome the ambivalence and the doubting, it's struggling against it. Right. If it weren't, right. it wouldn't be uh, dogmatic. Right. Exactly right. So, uh, yes, that's it's like someone who's insecure and it manifests as them being, having brought bravado or acting. Well, know. it's work. The Course is, this is a lot of work yes. we're doing with this. This is important. We talked about this yesterday, the whole idea of, you know, working. Uh, you have to do the work, uh, is, is what we have been taught to believe. And in my first chapter that I talk about uh, these three levels of spiritual awareness, I say that you have to do the work of growing up, and you have to do the work of waking up. And now, um, but when it comes to the mysticism and stepping into beauty, stepping into being, it's not really doing the work. It's just no, showing there's, up. There's no, there's there's no, no work. work to it. And the thing is, you can, when doing the work of, of, of growing up and doing the work of waking up has gotten to the point where you feel that life is just a drudgery, then guess what? You don't have to do the work anymore. You can 
wake you can step into being you can step into beauty and that only requires that you show up there's no work involved it's effortless no there's activity but it's not on the same basis when you're when you're doing the activity in within structure you're doing it to please the ones who are teaching you to seem to be a good student to be a good learner to be a good whatever because it's all about good so you have to appear to be good be a good boy yes okay and then when you <laughs> move into rejection of everything then you're free to be bad you mm. know but so what do you know about about uh, you know your activity being rest itself you're busy throwing off mm -hmm. the baby and the bathwater. Very busy, yes. Oh yeah, it takes everything you can, your head is spinning. But you enjoy it. Well, in a certain kind of a way. In but an ego way. In an in, ego, in, in it's, ego it's a, way. But yes. it's not who you are. And, no. And you know that. You know you don't know who you are. You mm. know you're lost and you're frustrated and you're confused and it's not a happy feeling. But you put up a strong face, a good you put a good front for others to see. You know, you're very dogmatic and certain that you know that... Well, dogmatic is not certainty, in my view. I'm not going to mix dogmatic and certainty. But you're, in fact, dogmatic is like trying to overcome your confusion. Oh, yeah, I'm going I'm to be very clear on this. I'm going to emphasize this is what it is. But... Well, dogmatic lends itself to the idea of being religious. So you're being religious in one way uh, by by being good, and then you're being religious. You're also being religious in another way by by adopting this unbelief and you know, skepticism. So that's another form of religion. It's another form of religion, exactly. It's just another, without perhaps without structure. Maybe it might have depending where you're working. You might have structure. You might not. But generally, you're overturning. You're trying to rebel against all structure and be somewhat anarchical within your mind. <clears throat> so then when you move into the activity of rest in the beautiful, what you notice is now you're aware of who you are. And you want to be who you are. You want to address and be true to and be, you know, serve the purpose of who you are within now, you know, recognizing you're in the physical. You want, what you're doing is now for you. It's not for somebody else. And it's it's not laborious because it's just what you do. It's like breathing. Well, when you say it's for you, um, you you're referring to the higher self because... Exactly. The, the, you, what you now know with certainty uh -huh, uh -huh. is who you are. Yeah, you know your identity, your beingness. And before, that was never there. So when you were doing something for yourself, you thought you were doing it for yourself, but how could you if you didn't know who you were? Well, I mean, how do you have to be the good boy and the good pupil for yourself? If you don't know who the self is. Yeah. <laughs> and how do you reject everything, you know, with, uh, you know, you don't even know what you, you posit that there's some truth for you to find somewhere, but you don't know where and you don't know how and you don't know when. Okay. <laughs> Right. So it's it's 
a lot of work and it's a lot of discomfort and it's not something any either one of those that you view at the time that you're doing it for yourself really uh-huh. but once you know yourself you know who you are and you know you know what what it means to be tr- yourself and be true to yourself you realize this is this is just the give and take this is just the in and out the breathing mm-hmm. well you know you talked about your crossing over experience would you say that that coming back from that you had a true sense of who you were but before you did not is that would that be accurate of so the question then oh, would well of course of course you come back with a, a i mean it's night today it's night today to have left the world and seen the other side, and there's no world there. That is remarkable. I mean, the experiences, what it is, other things you try to learn in, in the world, in life. You try to understand, but they're not experiential truths. Uh-huh. You don't experience them. Uh-huh. This was an experience. This was totally experiential. And... So you remember the experience of getting there, of being gone from the world, of there being no world to find or think of or no evidence there ever was one. It is so gone. Okay, it's like it wasn't real. Like a dream. Yes, exactly like a dream that has ended. It's exactly the experience. And so... Yes, when you when you see the world from this point of view, and then you come back in, oh yeah, of course you're going to see everything in a in a in a diametrically different uh, way than you ever conceived of it, because these are not conceptions; they're experiences of of the other side of uh-huh. truth, uh-huh. and they're not something that your mind can dream up because it has never, it just cannot. There's a limit to how different it can think from, you know, the confines that you're in. Uh, it, it thinks along certain lines and no other. So you can't just dredge up something that's so fanciful, it's so out of the box, it's just absolutely diametrically opposed to anything you ever experienced before. Right, well, there's, you know, um, I've heard people... Uh, that have had an enlightenment experience, like they meditated for three years, and then after, and then they have this moment of of uh, of satori, uh, this enlightenment, and so and they come back from that experience, um, <coughs> and they describe this world that we live in and that we're so familiar with as being not real. And that what is real is what they experienced in Satori, what they experienced in that. After years of meditation, they had this enlightenment experience, and for them that was more real than this world. And they want to get back to that. So they continue to meditate to get back to that. And um, it sounds very much like what you're describing, only uh, yours was kind of a, an abrupt, you know, you're in the you know, very ICO. very abrupt, but it's so vivid. And... and it's like everybody wants a happy ending, but nobody can dare to think of an ending this happy. Mm. It's like we will not allow ourselves to hope for what actually is true. 
So it, it was it was a shocking, and this is certainty. This is what certainty really means: uh-huh. is when God conveys to you the truth. You are, the course says, you're within God's mind. Your mind is shared with His mind. His thoughts, therefore, are shared with you. Your true thoughts are shared with Him. Okay, everything is joined in reality. You and God Most High and all of creation are sharing from a place of joining. And it's a place of deliberate joining, of conscious joining. And this was what Jesus was calling us toward all the time through his ministry. He kept teaching and harping on this, about joining. And when you go back and really examine the gospel, you can see this. But it's not the first thing that you see from our perspective because we don't catch on to what is meant. We kind of gloss over it because we don't know what to make of it. What is joining? How is, what is sharing? We don't really know because we think everything is separate. We want everything to be separate until we realize that we really only always wanted everything to be joined. And that's the breakthrough. The breakthrough from frustration, from loss, from death, from lack of life, lack of love, lack of joy. The breaking point and the, the dividing line lack is when... Lack of security. When, uh, all of that. Yeah. Feeling lack unsafe. of safety. Yeah, yeah all the, the breaking point comes when you realize that it's all about joining. And that joining... Sharing, that means belonging, inclusion, a true home, true fullness of life and bliss and security, unparalleled, and not worked for, not hoped for, but actually given for eternity as your truth. Uh This is your truth now at Uh this very minute, Uh if you can open to it. But how can people, you know, if how can they believe if they've not heard? And how can they hear if they've stopped their ears? Even if people have told them they can't receive it. Well, they don't have a frame of reference. Exactly. Yeah. So Jesus said, repent and believe the good news, for the kingdom of heaven is within reach. And that's, that's what is within reach, is drop your burdens at the riverside and depart in peace. Yeah, baptism is symbolic of that, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. So they had this baptism of repentance, and repentance, of course, means to change your mind. But John the Baptist was all about baptizing people, and you know they would go down into the water of Jordan, and they would come up with this... With this uh, metanoia, this changed mind, and this joy, uh, peace of their having their sins forgiven. It was a cleansing thing, you know. And, and it was as if, you know, we're told in one of the Gospels that, that, that there was like this dove, or some something that had come down was on his shoulder when Jesus came out of the water. Right. And figuratively, this is what it is. The dove of peace is with us at that very moment. Uh-huh. Symbolic of the Holy Spirit. Yeah. Yes, and the, the heavens opening, and a voice saying, This is my Son, in whom I am well pleased. Okay, 
So this is our experience, not just Jesus. This is our experience if we choose to allow that to be our experience. But we have to move from, you know, structure, which uh, you've pointed out in the past that the should do and should be, and move, uh, you know, from <coughs> from the rejection and the, <coughs> how else would you call it, the throwing off of everything, <clears throat> and move towards an experiential, participatory, little willingness, as the Course calls it, to share and to join, and to take the first steps into a larger life. <clears throat> so, and, and the way we are drawn toward that is because we're called. We're, we're recalled to life, as we said yesterday. We're recalled to life. And we are invited to choose life fully, to the abundant life, overflowing, and to know joy and to know nothing else but joy. Now, this word recalled, what did we say about that? The, um, I kind of took issue with <coughs> this idea of being recalled. Um, what does it mean to be... I said... I the said, the phrase comes to us from Charles Dickens in Tale of Two Cities. You know, and it was a very graphic kind of a phrase, this idea of being recalled to life. Uh, you know, and... I find that that is myself. That's the way I look at the whole experience that I've been through and the reversal of the the being sucked down into a in a one way uh, diminishing capacity, and then being re able to be released from it and come back out of it. Well, hold on. Now that's very important. So we have in cognitive science this idea, and there's a new way of looking at addiction, saying that what addiction really is is not a disease, but it's a reciprocal narrowing. And so that a person, uh, their cognitive ability is reduced, uh, their choices uh, as they perceive them are limited, and so they get caught into this downward spiral, and once they, and as we have said, it kind of builds momentum, as like going down the drain, they feel like at some point, this is who I am, I can't change who I am. But, there, but I'm saying if there is a reciprocal narrowing, as John Vervacki has pointed out, if there is a reciprocal narrowing, there has to be a reciprocal opening available as well. So what's the trigger for that? What opens that up? And uh, I listened to some John Vervacki last night, and he was talking about this very thing. And he used a lot of technical terms uh, uh, that are not readily accessible by people who are, because there are Greek terms, um, Greek philosophy terms that are not um, familiar to people. So uh, he, what he's saying, I believe, is, is on point, but somebody needs to unpack it and be able to express it in a way that can be received and understood. Um, and so that's what I'm interested in doing, you know. And that's part of what this whole project is about, like bringing somebody to an understanding of... of to the, what does it mean to be in a third level of spiritual awareness, and, and that we call I'm calling uh, 
mysticism. What does it mean to step out of the having and doing mode into the being mode? What does it mean to step into beauty and peace and joy as opposed to being locked into this um, dogmatic good and dogmatic true mentality that's constantly, you know, exerting false authority? How do you get past all of that? How do you step into, how do you approach this, this sacred space, this enlightenment? What is going to be the, the key forces and factors that then take somebody who's in this downward d depression and addiction spiral of reciprocal narrowing of their cognition? How do you turn that around? What, it, what produces this uh, spiral back up? And, you know, maybe it's just not complicated. Maybe it's just having the vision set before you. Um, maybe it's just the light presented to you and, and you're being recalled to life. You know, the word that Jesus used was repent, you know, believe the good news. The kingdom of God is within reach. But what is repentance and what is forgiveness? As Jesus describes it in the Course, Course of Miracles, what is the difference between repentance and forgiveness? Well, let's start with repentance. So we have, um, we talked about John the Baptist baptizing. And this was called the baptism of repentance. Okay? And this was not some new idea. This was not some alien concept, okay, that Jesus came up with. It was something that was familiar to the Jews because the Jews had always been, um, you know, this idea of purity and cleanliness and was always tied together. And so there was this, they were really all about this. And sometimes it was just taken to almost ridiculous lengths. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, like, if a, if a woman was on her period, she was unclean. Her husband couldn't even, you know, be around her, much less touch her. <coughs> and then, you know, they would take some blood from a, a, a heifer calf, a red bull and dip the the hyssop into the blood and then they would sprinkle that um, and onto the tent or the various things and that was an idea that now we're taking something that was unclean and we're making it clean and it was by the blood of this red heifer and that was a process that they would do they would go into the temple and they would spring uh, use that this blood and, and it was you know, so that symbology was already there. And then, coming forward, you have John the Baptist taking people into the, uh, into the uh, baptizing them in the Jordan. And this was very symbolic because the Jordan River was where the Israelites, the Hebrew people, crossed over into the Promised Land, right? Leaving Mo Moses to watch them crossing over, I guess. But, anyway, the point is that there's a lot of symbolism going on here involving blood, involving water, Involving cleanliness, involving purity, and, and involving changing your mind. This idea of repenting. You know, the the, the Jews were 40 so does years. does repenting get lost in all of this? Well, look, there were 40 years that the Jews wandered in the wilderness, and that was kind of like their punishment for not trusting God. Well, where so, was repentance in that? Well, the repentance was not that those people repented. The repentance was crossing over from one side of the river to the other. So there was a repentance there when they when okay, it, well, there was a baptism taking place for the whole nation. They were crossing into the promised land, the kingdom, 
right? I'm and so, saying, why would you be lost in the wilderness, worshiping false gods and what and what they were, and apparently even doing human sacrifices? Okay, and talking about repentance at the same time. See, this is not repentance. No, I'm 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 trying to bring your mind to John the Baptist. Okay, right. How, what did what was the significance? of this water baptism that John the Baptist was engaged in. Why were thousands of people coming to the coming to be baptized by John? Why? And and I'm saying that you have to understand this whole history of the Jewish people and their own mythology. Well, if, this is to understand the Jewish idea of That's right. of repentance. That's right. That's what we're but, talking uh, about. I'm talking about something even beyond that now. Well, I'm well, good. talking about a current good. modern non-Jewish, right. non-linear, non-historical right. understanding of repentance. Can we even use that word right now? Without well, its previous attachments, without its history, do we see the past when we see that word? And if we do, what other word can we use? And mm -hmm. what are we talking about right now in terms of the diminishing returns cycle that we've talked about here, coming out of that, how is repentance going to apply to turning around this cycle of closure? Well, we need to go deeper into it, because we're talking about, you know, Jesus, you quoted Jesus' saying, you know, and and, and so that's why I'm saying we got to go back to understand the Jewish context. Well, we have, in we've order done to that understand, now. Okay, we, you, all we've right. looked at that, we've done and that. I'm, I'm so, saying, can we now yes. move away from that? Yes. Leave that aside. Yes. Step into the present yes. moment. Yes. I am more than ready to do that. I right. think that's. I think it's, uh, it's overdue, and so you know we've had two thousand years of Christian history that was truly not really even understanding the the Jewish context, um, not trying to understand the Jewish context, and so obviously misunderstanding and misrepresenting the idea of repentance in some ways, and I think that we've all suffered from that. So it is time to kind of, uh, to reformulate. No, and we can go back to the original word metanoia. Yes. To, to realize, yes. okay, what, yes. how can we repent now, now? Now, metanoia being Greek was not some Jewish concept. Right. Okay, so what does the Greek term metanoia mean? And does, if I understand correctly, it's just a, to change your mind, right? Well, um, we're told that that's a good translation, a change of mind, a change of heart. But... I was thinking about it the other day and thinking aloud and remember I, I used, I made a parallel between paranoia and mm, metanoia. Mm, yes. And we all know that paranoia is just this very irrational and unhealthy fear of something. Gone too far. We're just absolutely <laughs> afraid. That really beautiful, that's really beautiful and it fits. Like, it's like, it's like thesis, antithesis, synthesis. So you have the paranoia, right? And that would be first level. You, you step into structure because of paranoia, right? Exactly. You, and so you need structure to, to keep yourself out of paranoia. There's, but finally you become, fear. you become disenchanted and then paranoid of the structure. And you move into rebellion mm. against all of that, right. throwing it off yeah, you in paranoia. Yes. So, so now you've you're no longer afraid of the paranoia. You're able to use it as a tool, as a weapon, and you can weaponize beliefs. You can weaponize faith. Isn't you can that weaponize... interesting? Yes. Yeah. You, there was actually a change in your relationship to the paranoia. 
yeah, you're swimming with the sharks. You're 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 embracing the fear in some ways. You're but you're using it to to uh, boister the ego. You're going to use it to weaponize fear to use against others. You're you know so now it's not trying to avoid paranoia, but it's stepping into it and embodying it. So this is not repenting, obviously. And and yet when you move into the, after you play all this out, finally you get to a point where. You, of metanoia, where now you can move beyond the fear. You're, when we have talked about the polyvagal theory, we're talking about our physiology determining in many ways our interactions, our ability to love, our ability to interact in healthy ways, our ability to meet each other's needs, our ability to understand our intentions toward each other. All of these things come about, you know, because of, through in polyvagal theory, because of our, the extent of our fear. It is so, our fear and our lack of security, our inability to find a safe place, and, the, and what the polyvagal theory is saying is this is so critical. You cannot d downplay it. You must, 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 to have a healthy uh, life, uh, you know, uh, a, an adult life of achievement, and, uh, of success, you have to have a baseline of safety. Have to. It's not something that, it can't be kicked aside. It has to, it has to be respected. And the fear is so intense, the paranoia of living in the physical world, uh, it, it is profound. And the Course says this all the time. The opposite of love is what? It is fear. Because within fear, within the grip of fear, there is no capacity to love. And this is exactly what the polyvagal theory is saying. So, when we talk about paranoia and metanoia, I mean, they're not really, in a way, linguistically absolutely related this way, but when conceptually they're very close when you look at it in these terms. So, moving into, into metanoia is moving through your fear. And this is what Jesus is calling us to do in the Course is absolutely, and was, I believe, in his earthly ministry. Uh -huh. Well, I would also want to point out that, you know, the English translation that we have is repent and believe the good news. And these are English words, okay, and they're distorting the original message in some ways because there's a transmutation of meaning. So we, let's break it down. So we've talked about repenting, okay. Well, the English term, as I understand, <clears throat> comes from the idea of uh, that, that a commanding officer would would command the troops and say, repent, and that meant about face. Turn and walk the other direction. Right. So if the army is marching one okay. way... so and that he, was what we were talking about earlier that says depart in peace. Right, that connects to that. So that's a beautiful picture to connect that idea of repentance with the idea of depart in peace. You walk to the altar, you empty yourself, you walk away. So that's repenting. You were going, you were, you were, your life style was one direction, then you turn around and you go the other direction, or whatever the case might be. 
And you do so without self-recrimination, without blame, without finger-pointing at yourself or others, mm -hmm. without uh, anger, you know. I, you empty yourself of these things that are all a lack of love. Yes. Because you've found love, there's a song that says, what are we going to do now that we've found love? <laughs> this is the question. This has to be our big concern. Now that we've found love, what is our life going to look like? Good question. We have a new horizon, a yes. Shangri-La to live in. Mm. We must embrace it, respect it, explore it, and seek our adventures there. Yeah, at the mountaintop, um, you know, at a high altitude. Uh, it's a beautiful image. Um, so, yes, yeah, so, so going back to this baptism, there's a cleansing, okay? So you were, you were unclean, but now you are clean. So what are you going to do now that you're clean? Now, uh, how, okay, now that, in that context of baptism, you, there's some purity, mm -hmm. all right. But now in the concept of forgiveness, from the Course perspective, <clears throat> we need to actually have a change of heart that we're saying that, that that's what repentance is. So that means... We have to move from a place of lack of love to a place of participating in love, opening to love, understanding that giving and receiving are the same thing, that we are now acknowledging that we were created as love and we remain as God created us. We are love. And that's our purpose in the world, that's why we are in the world. Mm -hmm. And I think that's a very... To be the light of the world yes. because of our love. Yes. And so I think that that's a, a beautiful way to explain the idea of uh, coming out of the water and being pure and having the dirt washed away and now you're clean. See, the, but the problem is that human beings have distorted this so terribly into because of their paranoia... So now they think, oh, you know, I have to be clean. I can't eat certain food, and I can't, you know, touch certain people. And it becomes a separation thing, right? That's what the human mind does. Let's not blame God for this. So, <clears throat> so this is the wrong idea. And we need to recognize that as being a, a wrong idea, this separation. Well, claim. What, makes one, what makes one impure? See, Paul kept talking about this at length. In, in the Pauline letters in mm -hmm. the Bible. So, is it what you eat? Is it what you say? Is it what you do? Is it what you think? All of these came up in the New Testament. Right. Does this make me guilty? Does this make me less than? Right. Even though I've repented now, I haven't been perfectly obedient, and now I'm guilty again. Okay, now what does this mean? If I have guilt, and I'm thinking that I'm guilty, and I have guilty mind, I'm afraid. I'm moving back to fear. I need to move through fear in metanoia. A change of heart and a change of mind does not take me back to the base of fear because I have no security there. And having no security, my 
polyvagal theory is going to tell me that I cannot live in love. Therefore, the Bible, according to the part you were talking about, is going to describe me as living in sin. Now I'm sinful. I got pure, I got cleansed, and I got pulled back into sin and because I was fearful. Mm. You see this dynamic? Oh, yeah. Okay, so that isn't going to work. That isn't what we're called to, and that is not the salvation that we ultimately can realize. The, I mean, I'm not... I'm saying that what we have done and how a modern person will look at the things that you're talking about that went on in the Bible, in the New Testament, about baptism and about purity and about obedience and about guilt and about sin, all of these, about blood even, we have moved on. I, I have moved on. I don't need to hear right now, it's not going to help me, okay, about but... to hear about blood. I don't, I'm past that for myself. I'm not going to speak for anybody else, although other people have said the same thing to me, and I think, you know, I, I know, I know. I'm I, need, I need to drop that. I need to go beyond blood right now, because I, that, that seems so primitive to me now. Well, yes, um, certainly, uh, but well, we, if you look at the history of the evolution of the human consciousness as, you know, Ken Wilbur has these levels. I think he has seven or eight levels, and he starts with magic as being the first, okay? And blood played a role in magic. Then you had uh, mysticism, the mythic, you know. So in my classic example of this would be uh, the Greek gods, you know, myth, the mythic storytelling. So, so the human consciousness evolved, and some people stayed in magic, some people went into the mythical, and then later we progressed beyond that into, you know, what might be called um, reason, I suppose. So there was a move from... Irrational reason. Yeah, well, from, the, from your perspective, it's, reason is always going to be irrational if it's in this world, because uh, that's the nature of this world. Is to, it's, it's corrupt in so many ways. So... <clears throat> But, and then the, the levels continue to rise, and, and at some point, it, there's, I guess, the tribal or ethnic, ethnocentric kind of mentality, and then above that is the reason, which has to do more with a global-centric kind of, like, uh, inclusive of all humanity, and some people aren't even there yet, okay? Some people, even today, there's ministers that preach the Christian doctrine, and they're orthodox teachers of Christianity, and they're still operating at this mythic level, and you know, that they're just one step above magic. And, and they're still talking about sin, they're still talking about repentance and baptism and the blood, and the blood covenant, and that when Jesus died on the cross, that he shed his blood, and that the blood is what wipes our sins away, and this is all just magic and mythical understanding of, of Scripture. Now, what you're attempting to do is say, okay, I am past the magic level of interpreting Scripture, I'm past the mythical level of interpreting Scripture, I'm even past this ethnocentric kind of uh, idea, and, you know, because Paul evolved beyond that. He says there's no longer uh, Jew and Gentile. You know, I mean, he, he, he was one of the first to articulate the idea of this uh, new level of awareness of the, all of humanity is inclusive of one another. And so this was a, a step up from the, from the previous 
comprehension of the and it was a, it was a uh, paradigm shift of, of consciousness of human awareness so, so but that's not where it stops is it it continues on so you then move up to a more um, like uh, a more inclusive or integral understanding and each time you go up a level you don't throw away what was there before okay it still it still has it's still uh, something that you can make reference to and has but now it has this different meaning it you has a different on on another set of shoulders every every time you go up another notch yes and, and, and it gives you a different perspective yes yes so you know um i'm i understand that you know you're past the whole blood thing and i get that because it's you know the magic uh that really sounds like primitive but at the same time we don't need to necessarily throw this out completely because no. we can understand no, the we symbolism can understand allegorically. allegorically and figuratively and yeah. symbolically. Yeah. I mean, for the blood significance was, you know, like um, Jonathan and David, wasn't it? That they were like cousins, and and when King John, the the king, the crazy king, uh, was trying to kill David, and they became blood blood brothers. They they so there was a bond and that that they he promised to take care of his family if anything happened to him and and he did so this this idea of a blood brother is a significant thing that's multicultural this wasn't just a jewish idea this is you know, the uh, american indians did the same thing okay when it comes to sacrificing um a blood sacrifice. This is ubiquitous throughout all cultures, throughout all time. In fact, um, the Chinese used to have this big. They worshipped one true God. They worshipped God Most High. Um, but they had a different name. It wasn't Jehovah, but it was uh, Songhai, I believe. So you had this temple in uh, ancient temple in ancient um, China that was uh, for a blood sacrifice, and they would they would offer up. Uh, bulls and lambs, just like the Jews did during the same time. Now, this is remarkable, because it wasn't just Jewish, it wasn't just a bunch of primitive Jews doing this. This was something that advanced cultures like the Chinese were doing in worship of the one true God. Okay? So, so there was this, this was something that was happening around the world and not just localized to the Jewish people. Okay? So, so I'm saying that if we're going to somehow um, talk about this idea of repentance and connect it to this blood sacrifice thing what is it you know then we have to look at the cross we have to look at Jesus shedding his blood on the cross there's a symbolism there you can't deny okay, it okay well I'm not denying it but I'm trying to reframe uh, for the modern person who's going down for the third time, to say, how am I to repent in practice, in, not in theory? I want a straw to grab onto. What am I going to grab onto? And so I'm saying, from the Course's perspective of forgiveness, uh -huh. which I've talked about in terms of depart in peace, uh -huh. of laying the lilies of forgiveness on the altar, uh -huh. everything that I know that I think is less than, that I think is lacking, everyone that I've judged, everything that I've judged about, everything about myself, them, and the world, and God, I forgive it. Meaning, I 
drop it. I no longer retain these things in my mind as active thoughts that I'm willing to host. I'm no longer willing to host them because I now can receive love and I know it. I can now participate in love fully and I know it. And I, therefore, knowing it, knowing, being able to have access to it, away I go. I depart in peace. I go running in my departure uh-huh. in peace. Uh-huh. Okay, so this is what I want to get down to is, okay, forgiveness is the way that the door is unlocked and opened. And I want to compare and contrast ideas of forgiveness and ideas of repentance, do they overlap? Are they essentially the same thing? Do they need to be similar in in the process, in the way that repentance happens? Isn't forgiveness going to have to be part of repentance? Maranoia, uh, changing your mind, letting yeah. go, walking, yeah, dropping exactly. at the altar. All of that. Yes, yeah. yes, I would say yes. I would say yes. Now, this so this moves us into a fuller and deeper understanding of repentance than we get uh-huh. from talking about blood sacrifice and what have you, uh-huh. even in the New Testament. If we just take and extract this juice and pull it over here and mix it with the other juice, and we make a drink that now is like for, you know, for today, the elixir of grace. Yes. Oh yeah, definitely. So then, what is grace? So this this is again, it's not conceptual, is it? If you try to make grace conceptual, you are beating a dead horse. So it's experiential. It's it's participatory. Okay. It has to be. Yes. It, that's it becomes our experience, mm-hmm. our experience of the goodness of God, the goodness of life, and the goodness of the universe, which is grace. And it's the beauty that you had talked about before. Mm. Yes, absolutely. Yes. Right, well, grace and beauty are like, you know, inseparable, aren't they? And then out of this comes the gratitude, the mm-hmm. recognition yes. of the beauty, the recognition yes. of the grace. So essential. Yeah. Yeah. So, because you haven't experienced grace if you're not grateful. I'm sorry. You cannot separate those two things. You can't. You cannot. You cannot. I've had people ask me, you know, well, what do you think grace is? And... When I think about it, it just boggles my mind. Are you telling me that you're questioning the existence of grace? It's finally <laughs> what I realize. Wow. I mean, well, grace is life itself. Uh-huh. Grace uh-huh. is the ability to go on uh-huh. against all of the deceptions and all of the illusions uh-huh. and all of the heartbreak that came of lie and frustration. Uh-huh. Okay. And one one can find that truly mm-hmm. the grace of God comes to us fresh every mm-hmm. morning mm-hmm. like the dew on the grass. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. This is God's grace. Every day uh, we have a, an opportunity to start afresh and to move out towards the highest heights mm-hmm. of experience and of joy. Truly, 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 you know, just the way you describe it, grace is an awesome thing, and we take it for granted, but it's there every day, as you point out. Every morning we get up and we're, we're, we're given the grace to, to start again. 
right? And so it, that's a metanoia, whether we chose it or not. We we are able to be uh, go to sleep at night as a form of baptism, of cleansing, and that we can then wake up the next day and start fresh. We all are given that grace by God every day, and who's grateful for it? We just take it for granted. But it's very real. It's a part of our essence of who we are. When you go back to this idea of paranoia and fear and the polyvagal theory of you know the organs shutting down, right? Where the body doesn't feel safe, and so. But you know what? The grace of God is that every morning you wake up and you got to start fresh.